Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and I'm very honoured this time to have as a guest a 2000 AD artist who's also drawn Spider-Man, Doctor Who, Axel Pressbutton, all of the Justice League, I think, as well as, of course, as drawing Dread, Rogue Trooper and Slain. Uh, it's a huge book club welcome to Mike Collins. Mike, thank you for giving up your time to be on the book club. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm uh, quite honoured. Thank you. We'll start, as we always do, with comic origin stories. Uh, you and I are of a similar age, so when was your, uh, what was your first introduction to comics? How did you get into them? I started getting the DC Thompson Humor Weeklies as a kid, and uh, the one I liked the best wasn't the Be No Other Dandy, it was its strange, slightly twisted step-cousin, the Sparky. Oh, right. It seemed to have a bit of an edge to it, and I, I quite like that. The Beano and the Dandy seem to be very sort of uh, old school, even in the late sixties. But uh, the Dandy had a, a, you know, but the uh, the Sparky had a thing. And it, I don't know what it was about it. It was some weird strips in there. Spy versus spy, I think. So, or ice? No, ice spy. Spy versus spy. So, it's the mad one, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ice spy, I just thought was wonderful. I love the artwork in it. I love the the sort of zaniness of the humour. That really really worked for me as a little kid. And I think after that, it was probably TV21. Oh, right. Okay. So, like, the yeah, Jerry Anderson-type uh, comic strips. Yeah, so I sort of came in towards the end of that when it was sort of losing a lot of the Anderson stuff because, obviously, at that point, there weren't that many Anderson TV shows, and it started getting broader. And, in fact, the, the first strip I can properly remember in TV21 is actually Star Trek. Oh, right. And the, the, the weird fact about this is that Star Trek was in TV21 for a good six months before the BBC aired the TV show. So in my little head, Star Trek was an adaptation of a comic strip, just like the Batman TV show was. <laughs> and that, that's stupid forever. <laughs> <laughs> and while we mentioned TV21, it famously had that Daleks uh, strip in it which for years was very difficult to get hold of, and they finally recollected it. I think Panini put it out, and I mention that because you've done a cover for it, haven't you? Oh, yeah, that was great. And, I, again, this is the thing about coming late to TV21, is that I don't really remember the Dalek strips when they came out originally. Panini did do a partial reprint, um, oh, about 10, 15 years ago, but it wasn't all the strips. They, they didn't have everything there. And... Uh, in the meantime, the sort of technology has improved, so they've actually been able to get hold of a lot of the original artwork. So if you buy that Dalek book that came out at the end of last year, a lot of the artwork in there is shot from the originals. So it actually looks better than it did in TV21 back in the 60s. There's some gorgeous work in there. It was lovely for me sort of discovering this comic strip from like before my youth, but part of one of my biggest interests, which obviously is Doctor Who, considering how my career's gone. Right. And it was, it was, a, I was, they sort of phoned me about the blue and just said, Do you want to do the cover for it? And um, I initially went, Oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. But as I was going on with it, I realized that this was a big, big deal. I spent forever doing that cover. I'm so pleased that it's gone down very well. It's a terrific cover, yes, it's fantastic. And uh, we'll tweet some pictures of it when this episode comes out. So, um, I know, Mike, you know, slightly weirdly, you started off with a career in law before switching to drawing comics. How did that work out? <laughs> well, um, the, the, the thing is, where I grew up in, in West Bromwich in the West Midlands, 
and like nobody ever did anything as far as I knew that was you know you just it, it wasn't I always sort of uh, cruelly refer to it as a place you leave rather than a place you come from and I think my parents quite reasonably said that there's no way you can make a living drawing comics therefore if you want to do comics maybe get a proper job first and for some reason that ended up with me going to law school and I, I did two years of uh, studying law but I did it at um, University of West London, uh, Brunel University, and the idea of the Brunel degrees is you do six months of university, six months out working, which was great because it meant that I spent uh, my first two years of university, I had six months working for a solicitor back home in the Midlands, and then the second year I had six months working for a magistrate's court down on the um, English coast. And I sort of discovered by working practically that I really, really didn't want to be a lawyer. I think it was the fact that when I go out... Um, in the evenings to the pub when I was down in Hastings, that uh, when people shared, oh, yeah, Mike and wanted to talk to me, they were the criminals, not the police. <laughs> <laughs> this really wasn't my thing. <laughs> so, um, and, and also it's a thing that uh, what I was very aware of doing law as a degree is that basically I was making money out of people's misery. And I think in my young, naive brain, I like the idea of making money out of people's happiness and drawing comics. I know from reading comics from when I was really little that that's just great. So that's kind of the direction I sort of took myself in. I mean, uh, I've got friends that stayed on in the law and now they're all high court judges. So right. that's where I've been more. <laughs> I like that, though. Fashioning a career out of stuff that makes people happy. That's, uh, that's much better, isn't it? Yeah. So obviously, you know, you changed tack remarkably going to comics. And obviously, the question everyone wants to know is, what was your what was your break? What was your first published comics work, and how did you get it? Now, there's an interesting one. Uh, I'd been badgering Marvel UK in 2008 for a couple of years, and because I, I carried on at university, what happened was my degree is because uh, it's worked on a major miners system. All my miners have been in politics and history, so I was able in my third year at university to switch to doing a politics degree. Now, I suddenly found that after two years of doing the law where you have no free time at all, suddenly I had loads of free time, so I could, I could do more drawing, which is great. So I used to work down the college print room and do work for the, the college newspaper. I'd do posters, I'd do T-shirt signs, all this sort of stuff. So I sort of, was sort of, sort of taught myself how to, how to draw for reproduction, which is a, a skill in itself, I found out. Um, but because Brunel was just the end of the Metropolitan Tube Line, I was able to pop into the comics companies every few months take my artwork in and get thrown out the door. I mean, I spent about two years getting thrown out the door by Steve McManus and um, Robin Smith. Like oh, right. Months, I go up there with some artwork and they go, yeah, this is good, this isn't good, you need to do more of this, come back in a bit, and they give me an old script and I go away and draw it. Um, and actually, uh, I'm, because of doing this talk today, I've dug out some of my original sample artwork, so I would scan some of that body up for you. Oh, so you great. This and you can put some of my... my um, my tryout artwork of <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating looking back at it. And I go, oh my god, they did hire me in the end. Okay, <laughs> yes, and they did. And I know from Barney for 2000 AD, you did a future shock, that classic start out for 2000 AD. You did uh, a strip with Alan Hebden in 1984, I believe it was. It is, and I found the artwork to that as well. So that, that was quite funny. And what I'd forgotten about that is that I'd, I'd sort of went all in on it. And and I think this is part of the fact that the stuff that I grew up loving the most was the humour stuff. Because I got what was quite an open script from Alan, um, 
I just went to town on all the background details. Because I mean, you know, sort of growing up looking at people like Sergio Argonis and all the Don Martin stuff in Madden and all this. So there's loads and loads of little details in the background. And they actually changed a lot of the script because of the things I put in the background because they weren't very backgroundy, they were quite foregroundy. <laughs> um, and one of the really funny things I remember really clearly of this is that uh, one of the characters I drew on uh, in he's just there in a couple of frames, but he was an old guy wearing a t-shirt. And I think the judgment at 2000D at the time was that old people didn't wear t-shirts in the UK. So they actually switched the strip to, ha to happening in America. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's the a big part in that story is there's a whole thing that takes place in a burger bar. And in Alan's script, it's just, it's just a burger bar. But down the road from uh, Brunel in Uxbridge, in a place called, uh, usually there's a, a burger bar called Woody's, which is still there today because we went to visit it not too long ago. And uh, it's a haunt of students. And so I just made the whole thing about Woody's Burgers. That ended up becoming part of the script as well. <laughs> Fantastic. And you've you've worked on some of the sort of great 2000 AD characters. What was your favourite ones to uh, to draw? Oh, now that's a good question. Because after doing the Future Shock, I didn't actually do a bit for 2000 for a while. So I was working for Marvel UK doing the Transformers and various other bits and pieces. Um, but I kept sort of knocking on the door saying, can we do more, can we do more? And it was actually bumping into Glenn Fabry at one of the Westminster Hallmarks. And I've been doing um, Axel Press Button for uh, Eclipse Comics in America, right. you know, carrying on, carrying on the Warrior Strip. And uh, Glenn had seen the artwork and he said, oh, do you want me to talk to Pat about seeing if you can do a, a bit of slain? And I was like, I would love to do that. Um, we got knocked back on that because, you know, at the time you, you had um, Glenn drawing it and he had Steve Pugh doing it, doing, uh, Dave Pugh doing it, doing amazing work on it. And um, it sort of knocked around a bit and uh, what have you. And then Pat said, well, look, we're doing this new comic. It's not 2008. It's 2008 related, which is Dice Man. Right. I can kind of get you in by the back door if you want to do that. So uh, I ended up drawing Slain for Dice Man. And again, going way to town on that. And I just adored working on that. I mean, I saw one of my big things as a, as a teenager was Conan. And I think, thinking of Conan and thinking of the Barry Smith Conan particularly, I really wanted to draw like that. And I, I think that's what I tried to bring to Slain when I did it. So you've got all the aggression that... Um, Dave Pugh and Glenn Fabry got into the strip, but I was trying to get a bit sort of artsy-fartsy in there, and that was helped immensely by the fact I had Mark Farmer in me, and Mark's got such a gorgeous line. Uh, I, I think that is still some of my favourite artwork. Right. I mean, Dread, I mean, it was funny if I was uh, talking to an American artist on Twitter just this morning, and um, he was saying how he couldn't believe that you know we, we all love drawing Dread, and, uh, and I said, basically, it's in every British artist's DNA now. Yes. We can, we can all draw the outfit without reference. <laughs> well, let, let's mention... Dread. Sorry, let's mention Dread, because you did, of course, do a long stint on the Daily Dreads, starting in 1988. I think you did... I read your introduction to the Daily Dreads, Volume 2, this morning. You did three years, I think? Yeah. That was great. Um, starting off with John Allen. I mean, you, you're doing Prime Dread there. Uh, that was just great. And... I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I think the only reason in the end that I left it was I couldn't stand the fact it was in the Daily Star. Right. After three years, 
of going into the newsagent and picking up the Daily Star every morning to see my own artwork and seeing what it was surrounded by. Right. I, I think it's reached a point. Um, and it was also ushered along by the fact that um, I'd pitched a series writing and drawing for DC Comics and they'd give me the green light on it. And I suddenly realised if I was going to write and draw a monthly book for America, I couldn't do anything else as well. And I, I think at that point that the, the star had gone so far downhill that I just thought, no, I've got, much as I love Dread, much as I want to carry on drawing Dread, I don't want to be seen to be part of this paper. <laughs> well, if, if we ignore the vehicle of the Daily Star for a moment, I know from your introduction that from your own childhood, uh, newspaper strips like Jeff Hawke, Modesty Blaze, Garth were a big influence on you. What was it like to actually do a newspaper strip, a daily strip yourself? Was it, was it challenging work? It is challenging, and it's, it's, but it's a thrill. There's something about that three-frame format where you want to get this. It's basically, it's three frames. So the first frame is continuing from where you've been. Second frame is setting up now. The third frame is setting up for tomorrow. So it's almost like there's a cliffhanger every day in the artwork. And there's something dynamic about that that I just love. You don't get in any other format. Um, if, if I showed you around my studio, it is full of actually newspaper strip artwork. Right. I've got work from Jeff Hawke. I've got work from um, the Seekers, the, the uh, Giant Burns story they did for years. I've got I've got Terry and the Sun, which has got some gorgeous Ron Embleton artwork. Right. <laughs> Things like Matt Marriott's. Um, all these old sort of Western strips. Newspaper strips for me are just great. I, I adored them. Um, it was funny, growing up, my dad had the Express, and initially I thought it was great because it had Rupert in it, but then I reached a certain age and I realised that the thing I was enjoying the most was Jeff Hawke. Right. <laughs> and, my, and my uncle had the Mirror, which had Garth in it, and that was just wonderful because it was still Frank Bellamy at that point. Hmm. And, and how far good. ahead would you be in terms of drawing it before it would actually come out? I... I tend to stay a couple months ahead right uh there's certain points where because of other work i was doing so whether i was working for the 2000 itself or doing work for marvel uk or marvel us that it did start to slip i always tried to keep as far ahead as i could on that i, I quite like that about it because sometimes right. with the newspaper strip sometimes you, you can do two or three days a day i mean i know that um famously reg smythe that created andy Cap, he was two years ahead so after Blimey. he died this two years worth of work to print. Right. I was never that far ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking, as I say, I've got the Daily Dreads Volume 2 in front of me, beautiful hardback, 1986 to 1989. Uh, of course, it only has your two stories at the back, the Menagerie and the Monster Maker. Um I guess if we'd had Volume 3, or if we ever do get Volume 3, it's going to be largely your work, isn't it? Yeah, it will be, actually. That'd be great. It's nice to have that all together. So there's some uh, brilliant stories. Yes. Uh, funny, a few of the stories that John Allen did in the newspaper show, they sort of got reworked and turned up in 2008 proper, <laughs> some of the concepts they had. One of my favourite stories, which uh, hasn't been redone, um, I've been trying to sort of nudge um, Rob Williams about maybe doing this in the, for... for the tooth is uh they did a story called the elephant man which is all set in the undercity where there's this mutant that looked like an elephant that gets worshipped which is just one of the stupidest and one of the best dread stories ever <laughs> so everybody you know encourage everybody who's not already bought it buy volumes one and two of the daily dreads let's get volume three with mike's uh one's almost all 
Ian Gibson and stuff is great. Yeah. So the first one's mostly Ron Smith, the second one's mostly Ron, Ian Gibson, yeah. and the third one would be mostly you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, Barry Kitson did some stuff as well, and there's a couple of people doing bits and pieces, but um, I had pretty much an un- uninterrupted run for about three years on it. So. Yeah. I just wish we had volume three because they are such lovely things, um, beautifully laid out. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Daily Star, we would probably won't talk about too much, but the, 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 the Daily Dreads, such fantastic stuff. Yeah. And then, as you've mentioned, you sort of crossed the pond then because you were working for DC. Uh, again, how did you get that? Was that part of sort of their British Invasion recruitment programme? Yeah, kind of. This is a really weird one. And I've, I've done talks to schools and things, and um, uh, they sort of say, what's your career path? And, I, and I've always gone, there's no way you could follow my career path. It makes no sense at all. Um, I, I say I've been doing Axel Press Button for um, Eclipse Comics, and I've gone along to uh, one of the early UCACs in London, one of the big London comic conventions. And it was at the time when... Um, Brian and Dave and Kevin Mick had been picked up by DC and they were off doing um, amazing stuff over there and DC sort of realised there were loads of other British artists and so they sort of come over to swoop and take as many as they could and I'd been waiting to go on stage to be introduced at UK because that was the thing on those shows the, uh, the, the, the first day of the show they'd bring all the guests up and uh, just so was just standing in line between loads of the creators and it just so happy that happened that in front of me was Jeanette Kahn, the editor, you know, the publisher of um, DC Comics. And, you know, so if you, you're, you're standing there with someone you've never met before, you start making small talk because otherwise you're just going to stare awkwardly. And um, Jeanette said, oh, what do you do? And I said, I drew Axel Presper. And she said, oh, I love Axel Presper. Do you want to come and work for me? And I was like, yes, I do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Whether she thought I was Steve Dillon. This is entirely possible, but uh, <laughs> um, you know. I, 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 but if I, Jeanette Kahn I, says, "Come and work for us," absolutely, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you've drawn all the great American comic book characters. I think. I mean, were there any particular favourites that you got to work on while you were working for DC uh, or even Marvel UK? Well, I tell you what. Um, the one character I always wanted to draw was Superman and for years I didn't get a chance to do it um, and basically I did everything around Superman it was like I was circling towards him and it, it's one of these weird ones where a character like Dread I can always keep coming back to because there's so much you can do with it but after years and years and years of wanting to draw Superman that I got to draw Superman and afterwards I was like well I've done that now <laughs> so it was like one on a tick list right yep you know, um, but Batman Batman I go back to again and again I love drawing Batman there's, there's something about the gritty city and sorry about playing with shadows in the artwork that I really love. And I think it attracts a lot of British creators for that. Because right. it's a bit of a dunk side of superheroes, I think. Yes. Yeah. I mean you have got to look at one of the one of the greatest runs of Batman was uh, the Alan Grant issues in the late nineties. That was I mean, Alan nailed the character and he was working oh he's working with Norm Brayfogel, the art was gorgeous. And that, that is just you know, a seminal run of the book. It was brilliant. Not long had an episode with your colleague James Peaty talking about precisely that run. Yeah. Oh well, there we go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it was you know it, it was funny because I mean because James is a little bit younger than me, so he was reading it as a fan, where I was reading it as somebody working in the industry at that point and just thinking this this is the biz, this is so good. Right. He took that dynamic storytelling that he had on 
Dread and Anderson and all the things he's done for 2000 AD. Took it to America and just made it fly. It was great. And you say Superman was a sort of, you know, a goal to draw and Batman. Were there any characters that you didn't get to draw that you'd still like to have done? Well, I'll tell you the funny one. He's, he's Spider-Man. Oh, right. I, I've drawn Spider-Man. It's one of the first things I did from RVK was draw, write and draw stories set in um, the UK with Spider-Man. Because what had happened was that... Uh, Marvel UK had realised they were coming up to the run in the American Spider-Man comics where um, Spider-Man got a black costume. And they thought this was going to be disastrous because nobody over here knew why there was a black costume. Nobody would recognise that as Spider-Man. And so they, they, they toyed with the idea of taking off on a completely separate tangent and just doing originating material. And this is about the time that Captain Britain has been done by Alan and Alan and then Jamie and Alan. And... Um, there was a, a bit of money around to do originated stuff. So uh, me and Steve Moore had actually plotted out about a year's worth of stories for a UK Spider-Man story. So he'd, he'd move over here for reasons, and then he'd just stay, and just we'd just have adventures in Britain. And it was going to be fantastic. And then American Marvel looked at what we're doing, and we're going, hang on a minute. No, you can't do that. And what we ended up doing was just a, a four-part story, which when Steve had gone off to do stuff elsewhere, that I end up uh, writing and half drawing and barricades and did the other two parts that I didn't draw. Um, so I'd drawn, I'd written and drawn Spider-Man for UK. Years later, um, I got to draw Spider-Man for the French market. And so for quite a while I was doing Spider-Man stuff that, was, that uh, turned up in France and actually that stuff then turned up in Russia. So I, I think the weird thing is the French comic getting reprinted in Russia meant that it had like way higher sales than the American Spider-Man comic. Right. <laughs> um, so people like me and John McRae and um, who else was doing it at the time? John John Royal was doing it as well. So we were doing these um, Spider-Man strips that were, were big in Russia. Right. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. but for some reason, I've, I've never quite clicked. There's a couple of times where, because when Dan Slott was uh, writing Spider-Man, a couple of times where we nearly got to do stuff together. Because Dan's a massive Doctor Who fan. We've always had this thing that we're going to work together. It's probably going to be Doctor Who or Spider-Man. Right. Um, and uh, the Spider-Man things have sort of fallen through a few times. So that's still one of my goals. I still, after all this time, have not drawn Spider-Man for America. Right. So I'd love to do it. If it's only one issue and it could be, it'd be like Superman. I'd go, okay, I've done it now. Let's do yes. something else. But uh, I don't know. I, I think for me, particularly Spider-Man, is he was the character, or Peter Parker rather, was a character identified most with at school. Because there was me, this specky get with glasses that didn't get picked for sports and got, you know, the, the ones that are really good at sports kept um, hitting on. And I, I recognised that character and I identified with that character. Yeah. He was the specky git. And I think that was the, the genius of Spider-Man. Yes. Yes. That you was the... Yeah. Yeah, the nerdy teenager who got picked on was always... Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. That, that was us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, brilliant work by Stan and Steve Ditko, yes. Um, absolutely. And you mentioned Doctor Who, because obviously you've had a long and very successful and illustrious uh, association with Doctor Who comics. Um, you've drawn, I think, several of the of the Doctors. Uh, you've done work for Titan Comics with their Doctor Who line, I think. Um, who's your favourite to draw? Ooh. Actually, I'm going to say Matt Smith. Right. Matt Smith looks like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, he, he was great to draw. And I was when he took over as the doctor in the comic strip, we had a we had a series of um, 
rotating writers and we've got some great stories on that and there's some lovely stuff yeah yeah and I, I, I like working on that I mean I like working on all of them Doctor Who is my the first TV show I remember watching as a kid right so it's always been there for me and who was your doctor as they say who would be your definitive doctor growing up oh John Pertwee right <laughs> it is the correct answer <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is let's say we're probably similar ages but during the 60s, whenever Doctor Who would come on TV, I was tiny and I was petrified. Mm. Um, I'd, it, you know, literally, I'd be on the, the, um, the sofa type thing. Um, but by the time the show came back and it was John Pertwee and it was in colour, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm old enough now, I can, I can watch this. Yeah. And, and I think the genius of the John Pertwee thing, which we, we kind of forget now that, you know, it was... It was a gamble. Is that the first couple of years of John Pertwee's stories are all take place on Earth? They don't go off and do big interstellar adventures. And I think the the genius of Russell T Davis when he brought Doctor Who back is that's what he went for. He did the Earth central, Earth centered stories, so that your audience can identify a lot more with what's going on. Uh, and it was great. Pertwee was just a genius, and just such a flamboyant character. Yes, flamboyant character. He was great. Have you ever got to draw him? Funnily enough, <laughs> um, a few years back, I think it was in the first anniversary, uh, IDW, that had the American license for a while, decided they were going to do a story that featured all the doctors, so each issue would be a different doctor. <coughs> they got in touch with me because I, I was the only person that had drawn the ninth doctor. And we had this exchange of emails, and it was just like... we. Because you, you were the artist on the Ninth Doctor, we'd like you to draw the Ninth Doctor for us. And I said, oh, I'd love to. That, that's great. Who's drawing Pertwee? <laughs> and it went on a bit further, went on a bit further. And I went, yeah, but who's drawing Pertwee? You know, I could do both or I could do either. And uh, there was a delay for a little while. I just got this email back from the editor just saying, do you want to draw Pertwee? <laughs> <laughs> do I? And that was great because it was, uh, it was a great little story set in the 70s. And um, I just got to have fun with it. So I have drawn John Pertwee, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. And, of course, more recently, as you say, you've done the cover for the Daleks reprint, and then now, of course, you work on the show itself. Yeah, well, actually, I've been working on the show for, oh, Lord, how many years? Five years? I came on with um, the first year of um, Capaldi. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So I've been sort of with the show since then. I've not done a lot for... I only did it was last season. I'm supposed to be doing something this season, but we haven't quite got it together because I've been working on other shows. Um, but yeah, storyboarding for the TV show is great. Right. And that's, of course, you're doing the storyboard work for these shows now. Yeah. There Are is there any... Something... Go on, i got to say that there is something unbelievably satisfying about drawing a picture of Daleks and then going to the studio and seeing those Daleks standing exactly where you've drawn them. It's like having the biggest place ever. <laughs> and I know about your association with Doctor Who. Are there any other shows that you're working on that you can tell us about? Uh, well, I had quite a run, actually, of um, sort of big fancy shows because I did um, His Dark Materials. Oh, right. Both, both storyboard, both seasons of those. And um, I worked on uh, Good Omens. Uh, I worked on a show called um, Houdini and Doyle. Oh, yes. 
it was ITV down the bar, and that was great. That was a really good show to work on. I love that, and the, the sets they built in Manchester. I went to see the sets; they were fantastic. I've, I've done um, various shows over the years. I'm, I've just finished working on the second season of a show for Netflix. So I'm not sure I can say the name of, um, or can I now? I don't know. Let's leave it for the minute. But okay. the second series of something coming on Netflix. Yeah, I can't say which, which uh, show it is. So. Right. So Good Omens was a terrific show, um, which I've just done not long ago on my other podcast about British science fiction television. Um, that must have been great fun to work on that, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's creation, and uh, such a great cast they ended up with as well. Oh, amazing. Absolutely brilliant. I, I was just bowled over. What had happened was that uh, Douglas McKinnon that directed it, I'd worked with him on Doctor Who and on a show called Nightfall, Oh, right. The night that was on Amazon. So when he got to do this, he sort of uh, emailed me out the blue and said, I'm working on this little show now. Are you interested? And I said, oh, of course I'd be interested. What is it? And he went, good omens. And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Another moment when you get the you get the offer to work on something perfect. And it's a, yeah, it's obviously yes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah yes. I, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I might be doing other things. But they're going aside. I'm doing this. <laughs> so I'm going to turn you to the book that we've chosen to talk about in the book club today after doing a sort of whistle-stop tour through your career. Um, because I've got in front of me a 2018 hardback from Self Made Hero, Apollo, written by Matt Fitch and Chris Baker, with art, of course, by yourself, coloured by Chris Carter and Jason Cardi, letters by Ian Sharman, um, yeah. It's an absolutely fabulous book, Mike. Tell us, how did this come about? Uh, this is a strange one. Ah. <laughs> I had, it, it involves comic conventions again. I was at one of the London Supercons, and uh, Matt and Chris came up to me and said they had this idea for a graphic novel, and I had no idea who these guys were. Um, I said, oh, we work in advertising, why do graphic novels? And you immediately go, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, Okay. Do you know what this entails? And uh, and so chatted backwards and forth about it. So look, so at the time, I think I must have been working on Doctor Who and probably a couple of other shows. And so look, my, my day job is storyboarding. I don't do that many comics anymore. I'll, I'll fit a comic in here and there if I can and, because I still love working in comics. Um, but a project like this, I can't even think about. I said, but if you like, I can read the script through. I can give you some notes. So if there's things that you've got in there that don't work, in terms of comics, then I can sort of point you, because I do, I do a bit of art direction as well uh, for a couple of publishers, so, so I can go through and just say, say, you know, this works, this doesn't work, do more of this, less of that. And they sent me the script through, and it sort of sat in my inbox for ages, and I think it got to be about 11 o'clock one night, and I'd finished my work for the day, and I thought, right, well, I don't want to go straight to bed now. I have something to read, and I thought, oh, I know I've got to read, I've got, I've got the script to this project Apollo. Now, at that point, they hadn't told me what the project was about. I thought it was about the god Apollo. Ah. I, I thought it was about Apollo, the character out of the authority for TC. I didn't realise it was about the moon mission. And I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll start reading it. And about 3am, I finished reading it. And I, I immediately emailed Chris and Matt and said, I don't care how I can make this work. I'm drawing this. Right. I really have to draw this. This is, you know, wonderful. Growing up in the 60s, and with the Apollo missions, 
that um, I love all space stuff. So the idea about getting to draw the graphic novel about the first moon landing with a script as good as they did. I mean, it's a brilliant script. Yeah. So clever. And, you know, the use of um, factual material and the use of surrealism in it, which is unexpected. I, I think he's great. Uh, so I said, yeah, we, we're, we're going to do this. And we went back and forwards over how we we're going to do it, whether we're going to do it as a Kickstarter, maybe do it that way. So I did some sample pages, and I'm not sure what the line was about all this, but they got in touch with Emma at Self-Made Hero, and showed my sketches, showed her their script, and Self-Made stepped in and said, yeah, we, we want to do this. And that was fantastic. And then over the, the, the following year, 18 months, I fitted the artwork in between my various storyboarding jobs. So I was doing... Um, his art materials maybe two days a week and then a, a day or so working on um, Good Omens and then, you know, I think one of the things about storyboarding is it's not a seven-day-a-week job. Right. This is the thing to understand about it is that it can be that I will work for three days in a month on one show, five days a week, or five days a month for another show. So I've got all these gaps and what I, what I try to do with the comics is sort of fit stuff around that just so I'm, I stay busy for the entire month. And I managed to make Apollo work around that, which was great. Right. So it, it got a bit tight sometimes because when you're working on three or four different projects, for some bizarre reason, deadlines always seem to sync up. I don't know why that should be. So I was racing a bit towards the end and my my, uh, my girlfriend was bringing me food at two o'clock in the morning because I was still there drawing. But yeah, I got it done. For the, the, and I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it's come out. And I think what... Uh, Chris and Jason did with the colours as well. It's fantastic. And I always got to be in for my lettering, so it was got to read my package. Yeah, it's I mean it's a fantastic graphic novel. And how fabulous to be working on his dark materials, good omens, and an adaptation or a story about <laughs> Apollo eleven at the same time. Goodness. Yeah. One of, one of the one of the really daft things about this though is that when I'd read the script and when we had our first meeting, which first proper meeting about uh, breaking it all down which we had at the Science Museum, so we could go and visit the Apollo 11 land they've got there and right. take shots for reference. I know it well. Wow. It's an amazing scene, I think, for real. Yeah. Um, I was, we, we were sitting down and uh, I chatted to, to Chris and Matt, and I said, and I said, obviously you needed me to draw this because of my name. Yes. I, and went, oh, that never occurred to us. <laughs> I, how? There are three people in this story. One of them has my name. How did it not occur to you? <laughs> Because, of course, if you Google Apollo Mike Collins, you'll get, first of all, to the third astronaut on Apollo 11, the chap everybody forgets about. Um, but, oh, yes. It doesn't make a driver, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how does the book tell the story of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins and the Apollo 11 landing? What's great about it is it, it takes the story of them as people as well as the story of the mission itself. So there's there's lots of little um, digressions into Buzz's life, into Neil's life. There's not a lot into Mike's life because actually my namesake is this incredibly well-adjusted, happy-go-lucky character that nothing bad seems to have happened to. <laughs> but what's nice with Mike is that there's a, a sequence in the book which I think is great, which is this um, fancy sequence where they try and imagine what it was like for Mike when he was on his own on the far side of the moon where he was literally as lonely as a human being can be, yes. as isolated as a human being can be. 
And there's this wonderful dream sequence in there where he's just sort of through this uh, Dennis Hopper character that turns up uh, trying to rationalise how he's going to cope with the fact that if he fails to bring their ship up and link with them, then everything's over. It's all down to him. You know, li- literally everybody on Earth is trusting Mike Collins to make this work. Yes. So it, it's it's a great little sequence in there. I, I think it's um, it's lovely. And the, the background to Neil and Buzz's lives as well, they, they handle very well. Uh, in fact, I, I had real issues with the um, Neil Armstrong biopic that came out a couple of years ago. First Man, the uh, Damien Chazelle movie, yeah. Yeah, because there's some great stuff in there. But um, because the choices they'd made in that were to show Neil as this isolated, devoid of emotional character, it kind of misses out some of the fun stuff about the guy. Mm. And I got disappointed in the film because there's things I knew happened that they cut out the movie just right. to tell the story. That, and it's fair enough. They were telling a story they wanted to tell, and it wasn't any story is not the truth. Any story is a version of the truth that suits your narrative. And you've got to always accept that when you watch a biopic. But the moment I was waiting for that should have been in there, which would have transformed the movie into an Oscar winner for me, was when they're isolated after they come back from the moon, they're in quarantine for a few weeks, in the movie, when you watch it, Neil is isolated from the other two. They won't talk to him, or they're not. No, they're not talking to him. And his wife comes, and she's the other side of the glass, and it's just sort of like separation and all this. What actually happened, and the reason the guys weren't talking to him, is because Neil Armstrong requested one thing to have while in quarantine. That was his ukulele, <laughs> which he then carried on playing repeatedly. <laughs> Driving them mad, no doubt. Wouldn't that have been a great scene at the end of the movie? We Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. And so you say, I mean, you know, you and I both child, children of the 60s, grew up with Apollo and the excitement. Um, I don't know if you ever got the, the astronaut crew cut haircut. I know my parents did got us crew cut haircuts. Oh, yeah. oh yes, it yeah. was the thing, wasn't it? Um <laughs> And, you know, obviously you've got a fascination for it like I had. Did you have uh, lots of research to do? Funny enough, one of the things I kept from my childhood, I don't know if you had this, was the uh, Magpie ABC of Space. Oh. Yeah, the the book that was all about space. So I I had that, which I've I've kept since 1972 or whatever, Um, and and still do have. Um, I I got really deep into the research on it. Um, I found that... Uh, in this, I think it's on the Smithsonian website. They've got a 3D model of the command module, so you can actually move it around, which right. is great for me. It meant that when I was drawing the characters in that situation, I knew exactly which levers they'd be pressing at which point in the story. So I think I've got it as accurate as I can do. So when you see stuff in the comic where they're touching a lever, that's the that's the button they would press, or that was a, a switch they'd flick. Um, I get very obsessive about my um, my research. Um, I've got uh, models of all the spacecraft. I've now got lots of Lego models of all spacecraft as well because they exist. Um, but yeah, I, I did a ton of research on it. And there's actually things in the artwork which aren't in the text which tell you bits of the story. Towards the end, because one of the things that happened, which uh, the, the guy said that, they ended up cutting out the script because it was just too much detail. 
when Buzz came back into uh, the Lunar Lander the first time, he got that massive backpack. Well, as he came in, he actually knocked the lever off the um, starter motor for the um, escape engines. So basically, right. they, they were going to be stranded on the moon because they couldn't take off. And uh, lots of conversations back and forth. You can actually listen to these conversations back and forth with um, Mission Control in Houston. And in the end, Buzz found a felt-tip pen because it wasn't metal so it wouldn't conduct, jammed it into the socket so that when they took off from the moon, it's because he jammed this felt-tip pen into the socket and bent it the right way so it would take off. That felt-tip pen is actually in the Smithsonian. Wow. So I found photos of it. So if you look in the comic, you can see that in one shot towards the end, there's a, a felt-tip pen sticking out of a console. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. What a detail. <laughs> it still seems remarkable that they, you know, that we did this. That you know, they went to the moon and back safely. Um, and as you say, there's just so much astonishing parts of the story. Mike Collins, the literally the loneliest man, um, yeah. you know, on the other side, the dark side of the moon, with all the weight and responsibility that he had. Yeah, it's an absolutely wonderful book, Mike. How long does it take to draw something like this? Because it's a full-size hardback graphic novel. How long did it take? Well, I, I was working on it for over 18 months. Right. That was in between doing other jobs. I, I try and average, if I'm just doing comics, to do a page a day. For the most part on this, I think I was kind of doing that, but quite often I'd spend two or three days on a page because I wanted to get the backgrounds right or I wanted to get the reference right. It's uh, It was a labour of love. Yeah, yes. Just, um, as I say, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it's come out. Um, and I, I, I think uh, what's interesting as well about the look of the artwork is that one of the things that uh, Chris and Matt wanted to get very early on was it to feel like an artefact of the time. So it's the, the, the colouring's got that sort of almost sort of dot colouring effect from late 60s American comics. So it's got that feel. And I think so. Sort of having me draw it as well, because I've got this sort of reputation for doing sort of retro artwork. Right. It, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a a modern thing. It, it feels sort of grounded in that. It's very sixties, and you know, as I say, what an era of amazing technological steps, but also them literally fixing things, as you say, with felt tip pens, and <laughs> you know. I don't know if you've listened to that podcast, 13 Minutes to the Moon, which, as you say, replays some of the radio conversations when things were going um, somewhat wrong. Uh, it's yes, a they don't land in the right place at all. No. They missed the landing spot. It's extraordinary, just extraordinary. And the, 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 the small amount of fuel they had left when they finally touched down in Tranquility Base um, mm. and how close they were to the abort button. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, they, they got very, very close to the board. But, uh, I mean, w one of the things uh, I'll say about going to the Science Museum and photographing the, the lunar module there, what was great for me as a, an artist on this is that a lot of the references that exist are all just flat-on shots of things. Everything you just like, you know, obviously because all they want to show is it's this, this, this. Yeah. As an artist, you're more sort of different angles. So I basically storyboarded the whole book out before we went there. 
And so I'd worked out the angles I wanted things to be at. So I was able to go to the Lunar Lander module and take my photographs that match the angles I wanted. So there's shots in the comic which are actually as accurate as they can be, but, you know, don't exist as photographs. Right. And that's something I really wanted to get to it. I wanted to make it, make it feel right. Um, there's a Doctor Who connection with the cover. I mean, I think the cover's lovely. The guy that designed the cover also designed the poster for um, Moon. Oh, right. The uh, Duncan Jones film. Yeah. He's a brilliant designer. But I, I drew the astronaut, and he did the whole thing with the, the, the falling stars and striped background, which I think is a clever thing. But the figure of the astronaut that turns up on that cover is actually uh, a Doctor Who toy. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I looked everywhere to try and get uh, like an Action Man figure or um, a Hot Toys figure of a lunar astronaut outfit, and they either don't exist or they're just insanely expensive. But then I sort of thought laterally and realised that during Matt Smith's run, there's a story that involves Apollo 11 and features River Song turning up wearing Neil Armstrong's outfit. Yes. They made a toy of it. Ah. So the cover of Apollo... He's actually River Song. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Doctor Who connection. Yeah, so I had Fant the toy, posed the, posed the toy and drew it from that. Fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. And uh, you say uh, front cover design and typography, it says Dan Ford. Yep. That's the chap, right. Shout out Brilliant. to him. Absolutely. Your process, Mike, I mean, are you, do you still hand draw? Do you work digitally at all? I, I still hand draw. I, I pencil and ink everything hand drawn. Um, there are certain things that I will work on in Photoshop digitally. So that tends to be afterwards. Um, right. But I think one of the things I wanted to do with this comic as well is I wanted to use you know, the, the tools of the time. So a lot of the inking is done in old dip pens, which are kept for like you know, 35 years. Uh, I wanted to avoid anything about it feeling, stupid to say, but modern. I wanted it to have the the right feel all the way through it. So as much as much as I could, I worked with old tools so the artwork looked as old as it could do, or as accurate as it could do to the time. Right. Or and the the original art from it, do you still have it, or has it been? Yeah. Oh right. Got, there's, a, there's a few pages I've sold, but um, I've still got loads of it. So there's a lot of it. <laughs> right. Yes, there is because it's a it's a big book that tells the whole yeah. story. Um, yeah, it is fantastic. Such an achievement. So, Apollo, the graphic novel, is available, as I say, from all good bookshops, fifteen ninety nine or less. Uh, you can also get it on Comixology or Kindle. It's, it's hardback. I don't suppose, was, is there a plan for a paperback version? Well, we talked about doing a paperback, but it's actually had a couple of reprints in hardback, so it's still doing quite well. And um, it's been sold to, well, I've got a... a, a that's actually the German edition, which calls it Apollo 11. Right. There you are, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been in French, German, Russian. Um, I think there's a Spanish edition as well, and a Chinese edition, which is great. So the artwork's been seen all over the world, which is wonderful. A little bit that, you know, these guys just wanted to do as a thing, you know, right. their intent as big as it got. Do, you, do they have plans for anything else, do you know? After this first adventure in graphic novels? Uh, they've done loads of other stuff. They've worked Shaky Kane on a few things. Ah, well. right. I love Shaky stuff. Um, yeah, I think they're doing other bits and pieces. Uh, I don't know if we'll do another one like this. 
but this this for me is just a, a, a great piece on its own. I just think it stands alone as a, a lovely bit of work. Yeah, it is just fantastic. And as you say, uh, with my own fascination with Apollo and the sort of sheer endeavour of it, the sheer danger of what they were doing, um, it's just a fantastic piece of work. Um, it's terrific, Mike. Really great. Really enjoyed it. And you mentioned you've got some original art pieces from other artists around your studio. What's we we play this game on the on the podcast, the Grail Page game. What is the you know your favourite piece of original art from someone else that you own? I've got a page of um, Block Mania. Oh, I mean, I've got I've got the ice cream page. Have you really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think that's pretty much, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, what a page to have. I've got a few other pages because I've got a page of Nemesis that um, Brian Talbot gave me years ago. That's the one which has got um, Marilyn Monroe and Groucho Marx on it. It's all the all the TV ones, so I've got that. Uh, I've got a few other pages. I've got a, a Colin Wilson page that I bought off Heritage in America for some stupidly small amount of money because the Americans do not know who Colin Wilson is. Wow. And it's, it's the end of the uh, the organ leg story with the exploding um, warehouse. Right. Yeah, so in terms of 2000, I've got a few really nice pieces there. Uh, amazing stuff. So um, you've been very generous with your time this Sunday, Mike. Um, before we go, any other projects that you're working on that you can tell us about? Well, you mentioned James Petey earlier. Me and James have a three-part story coming up. I think it's in April in right. 2018. Which is we, we we've been talking online about for years about working together, and I'd said I really wanted to do something that sort of hark back to 2000 when I first started reading it, which is when it merged with Star Lord. Because actually, I was a Star Lord reader that moved over to 2000 AD. Ah, right. Because 2000 AD was on this scrappy paper, and who wanted that? Whereas Star Lord was just gorgeous, and it had Strontium Strong Dog in it. And I've always been a Strontium fan before I was a Dread fan. So I wanted to capture that sort of feel. So we've done this three-parter, which is far future science fiction, deals with alien religions and um, the quest for Earth. And it's it's fun. It's big. It's um, very Carlossy. Funnily enough, when I started, one of the first things, I was one of those artists that when I went to 2008, they, they wanted somebody to draw like Carlos. So they tried to get me to draw like Carlos, which is, impossible yes <laughs> um, nobody can do that i mean i tried but you know um but i've always had a, a because of examining his art to see how it worked which is what you have to do if you can try and copy an artist's style just take it all apart um i've got such a respect for the way he put stuff together um so I, I, this strip is very much like a tribute to carlos's oh, right you know out there science fiction stuff and that's coming up in april in the prog with james pt yeah, yeah, that's a, and, and coloured amazingly. Oh, I don't. That's almost redundant to say it by um, Dylan Teague. Ah, oh, Dylan. Yes, he's fantastic. Dylan, Dylan's made it look like a you know a classic French graphic novel. It's brilliant. And you mentioned Carlos and those Star Lord years because, of course, not too long ago, last year, we got that wonderful hardback collection of the Star Lord Strontium Dog stories. And I know we did talk about possibly doing that on the podcast, except someone had already picked it. <laughs> but presumably, you were, I presume you got that copy, uh, a copy oh, of that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, that's on my shelf with about three other reprints of exactly the same stories in black. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> 
But that's probably the nicest one that they've put out now, and it is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Oh, it, it's absolutely gorgeous. His, his colour work is just amazing. And even the grayscale work, I just love the way he rendered that. Um, it was just beautiful artwork. Right. It, it completely beguiled me because it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before when it turned up in Star Wars. Because some of the artists that worked on Star Wars, you'd seen in other strips, a lot of Spanish artists you'd seen doing other stuff. So it was like, oh, I can see where this is coming from. But Strontium Dog, I had no idea where that came from. It was just remarkable. Had he done that for Metal Hurlant in France, he would have been the biggest artist in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really think that, you know, there's going to be a reassessment of Carlos's work in years to come and people are going to realise just how damn good he was. Yes, yeah. And on a regular weekly basis, my God. <laughs> he <laughs> could he, do he, the stuff, couldn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, when he was doing um, Apocalypse, he was doing about 11 pages a week, which is extraordinary considering the quality of the work. It's unbelievable, yes. So, yes, the beautiful Star Lord Strontium Dog Years uh, get that collection as well. And do get a hold of a copy of Apollo because it is just fantastic. If you've got any interest in the uh, the uh, the exploration of the Apollo uh, astronauts, it's just wonderful. Oh, and the use of felt tip pens in space. Yeah. And felt tip pens to save save Apollo 11. Mike, what's at freecastgraphics.com? Uh, what will we find there? That's your website. Oh yeah, it's 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 got bits of various things I've done over the years. I've recently updated it so it's got a link to uh, like a current portfolio of stuff. I can't remember what that's called. It's not. I want to say discrete, but it's not that. But there's there's various buttons on the first page that take you to things like my Twitter and my Facebook and whatever else. But on the actual site itself, there's uh, links to various things that I've done over the years. So there's links to the 2000 the artwork, Marvel and DC work, storyboarding work for various companies. Um, there's, there's loads to waste an afternoon on. <laughs> Splendid. And the last question I had on our sheet was, it's always the, the big question, How? what advice would you give to aspiring artists looking to break into, say, 2000 AD work? I would say draw everything. Absolutely. I mean, whenever I go on holiday, uh, remember when people went on holiday? Yes, I remember those, yes. <laughs> I always take a sketchbook with me. I always draw stuff. If there's something different, I draw it. And what I found is that as an artist, it really helps. If you've got your own repository of images that you've accumulated, things you've drawn, uh, it, it, it's, it's a really useful thing. And draw different people's faces. Although uh, uh, a lesson learned the hard way, if you see somebody with a really, really interesting face, discipline yourself to remember that face and draw it later. Don't draw it at the time because they're going to come up and find out what you're drawing. And the reason you're drawing it isn't complimentary generally. <laughs> and they get very upset. Right. Okay. Excellent advice. Uh, Mike, thank you so much uh, for giving up your time this Sunday. And thank you for choosing the happiness profession over law. <laughs> Long may it continue. Oh, yeah. It's been wonderful. Thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, follow us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, and the 2080 forums. Uh, check out megacitybookclub.com, where you'll also find a link to Mike's website. Uh, and email us, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. So that's it. Thank you very much to uh, fantastic 2080 and other comic book artist Mike Collins. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and... Au revoir from moi. <laughs> <laughs>